Good morning. As we prepare to approach God's word, let us pray together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, send your spirit so that we may have eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So my name is Ben Ribbons, and since I'm, I'm not a typical face up here, allow me a moment to introduce myself. Uh, I'm a professor of theology at Trinity Christian College. I actually, uh, we're three weeks into the school year, and this is my 11th year. Uh, I'm also a minister of the word in the Christian Reformed Church, which is what allows me to, to go around to area churches and to preach and teach. And you may recognize me from sitting back there in the back left-hand side for about the last years my wife and I has, have been attending regularly. Um, and maybe you recognize me from running around the, the fellowship hall chasing our two little boys. Um, but it's, it's a great privilege to, to be up here, to have the opportunity to open God's word with you. So my thanks to Pastor Matthew, my thanks to the elders for extending this privilege to me. As we approach God's word today, I'm going to ask us to do something a little bit different. As has been the case as we've been going through uh, the Gospel of Mark, we've got a lot of scripture today. And so I'm going to ask that we read a little bit and then talk about it and then read and talk about it and go back a few times. So um, as you open your Bibles, open to Mark 8, we're going to pick up at verse 22. But keep your Bibles out over the course of the sermon because we're going to keep going back to the scriptures. And we're going to pick up reading there in, in just a minute. When I was a boy, I had a, a toy plastic lawnmower, and I loved pushing that thing up and down the yard. And there's a, a picture, a blurry picture from that, that age that fills me with nostalgia because I'm standing next to my dad. And my dad is a grown man with dark hair and this big beard, and I'm a little boy with sun-bleached hair. And he's pushing this heavy piece of equipment. They, they were made of metal back then, right? He's doing real work mowing straight lines. And I'm pushing this cheap little plastic thing, doing no real work, and definitely not making straight lines. But I've got the biggest grin on my face because I'm helping dad. That's what we do as kids. We learn how to be and act in the world by imitating our parents. And so we see what they do, and then we play it. We play house, we play making food, we play taking care of children, we play mowing, mowing the lawn. That's what we want to do, that's who we want to become. And then we get older, and we realize that housework isn't play. Taking care of kids is not play. Mowing the lawn isn't play. When I got to junior high, I no longer had to play mowing the lawn. It became my job. And so I was the one who had to push that heavy piece of equipment. I was the one who had to fill it with gas and dump the clippings in the compost pile. I was the one getting hot and sweaty and covered in grass. And it wasn't play. It was work. It was more than four-year-old Ben had bargained for. And today, our scripture passage is about discipleship. What does it look like to follow Jesus? And the 12 disciples are... Following Jesus, they want to be near him. They want to be like him. 
And just as children learn how to be and to act in the world by imitating their parents, so disciples learn how to be and act in the world by following their rabbi, by imitating their rabbi. And what we're going to find in our text today is that the the disciples, just like we had naive notions of what it meant to, to imitate our parents, so the disciples are going to have some naive notions of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Okay? So turn in your Bibles with me. We're going to pick up reading at Mark 8, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. So in this passage, we see Jesus perform a miracle. And as we have seen, as we've been working through the, the gospel of Mark the past few weeks, is we see that miracles, as Pastor Matthew has mentioned a few times, miracles are signs. Signs demonstrating that Jesus is bringing the power of the kingdom of God into the present. And so here when he heals this blind man, in particular, he's showing that the healing power and the shalom of the kingdom are breaking into the present. But there's something unusual about this miracle. In other miracle stories, Jesus heals blind men. In other stories, he even uses spit, even though that's kind of gross. But what's unusual about this story is that when Jesus spits and touches the man, he's not completely healed. He can see better, but the people look like trees walking around. Jesus uses a second touch in order to restore his sight fully so that he can see clearly. Now, that strikes me as odd. Nowhere else in all of the Gospels does Jesus use a second touch. In the other stories, Jesus uses one touch and the person's healed. Sometimes he doesn't even need to touch the person. Sometimes he's not even in the same vicinity as that person. So why in this instance does Jesus use two touches? Here's what I want to suggest to you this morning. In order to answer that question, we need to keep reading. Pastor Matthew has has pointed out a few times over the past few weeks that that Mark likes to put stories next to each other that should mutually interpret each other. And so if we want to make sense of what what Jesus is doing here with the blind man, we need to keep reading. So let's keep reading. Back to Mark 8. We're now at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. What about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. With this story, we get a change of time and scenery. Jesus and the disciples have traveled a a day's worth up to Caesarea Philippi, and they start talking about Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? Who do the people think he is, and who do the disciples think he is? And Peter speaks up, and he says, you are the Messiah. 
Now, depending on what translation you have in front of you, your, your text may say either you are the Messiah or you are the Christ. In fact, depending on, on when you were NIV, if you're reading an NIV, depending on when it was published, it might say either you are the Christ or you are the Messiah. The older NIVs have you are the Christ, but if you have an NIV published since 2011, it reads you are the Messiah. So what's going on with that? Christ and Messiah mean exactly the same thing. It's just two different languages. Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed, and Christ is the Greek word for anointed. So why anointed? Because in the Old Testament, people would be anointed in order to set them apart for specific tasks and jobs, like prophets, priests, and kings. But then over time, this title, anointed, became particularly associated with kings. The king was the Lord's anointed. But then Israel went into exile, conquered by the Babylonians and the Assyrians, so that they were no longer ruled by their own king, but by a foreign king. And even when they returned from exile, returned to the land, for the most part, they were still ruled by foreign powers. And so they longed for the day when they would once again be their own nation. They'd be independent. They'd have their own kingdom and their own king. And so they began to anticipate a kingdom that would come. And the person that would bring that kingdom would be a king, an anointed one, a Messiah. And so when Peter says, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, he's saying something about Jesus' identity. He's giving to Jesus a title. He is Messiah. He is king. He is kingdom bringer. And Mark has spent the entire first half of his gospel proving this statement. If you actually look back at the, the opening verse of, of Mark, Mark 1.1, it reads like this. It reads like this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, or again, your translation might have Christ, the Son of God. At the, at the very beginning of the gospel, Mark notes that Jesus is the Messiah. But then for the next eight chapters, Mark never once uses that word again. Not once. Rather than tell his audience that Jesus is, his Messiah, is the Messiah, he wants to prove it to them. He wants to show it to them. And how does Jesus show that he's the Messiah, the kingdom bringer? The answer is miracles. Miracles are signs by which Jesus brings the power of the kingdom of God into the present. And so if you look back at the, the first half of Mark, chapters 1 through 8, you'll see countless miracles. You can see this really quickly, actually, if you just page through those early chapters and look at the, the subheadings. So Mark 1, verse 21, Jesus drives out an evil spirit. 1, verse 29, Jesus heals many. 1, verse 40, Jesus heals a man with leprosy. 2, verse 1, Jesus heals a paralytic. We keep going. Jesus casts out demons. Jesus calms the storm. The healing of a demon-possessed man. Jesus raises a dead girl and heals a sick woman. Jesus feeds 5,000. Jesus walks on water. Jesus heals the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. Jesus heals a deaf and mute man. Jesus feeds the 4,000. And then 822, the passage we began with, Jesus heals a blind man. See, Mark is a good teacher. 
And so rather than telling his audience that Jesus is the Messiah, he's using the miracles to show them. And so we get story after story after story, miracle after miracle after miracle. And not once during any of those stories does anyone so much as whisper the name Messiah. Rather, the whole first half of Mark is building, building, building to this point right here, this declaration, finally Peter says it. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the kingdom bringer. And he's right. As readers of Mark, we all know he's right because we've seen it through the miracles. And now finally, the disciples see it. Peter sees it. Peter sees Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. But Jesus continues. Let's keep reading. Back to Mark 8. Now we pick up at verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter here goes from a high to a low. Because Peter misunderstands what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter, like many first century believers, was awaiting a certain kind of kingdom. He thought that Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans. He thought that, that Israel as a nation, as a government, as a political entity would be reestablished. He thought that Jesus would lead a revolution, ride into Jerusalem, throw off the Romans, sit on the throne as king, and then set up his friends, like Peter, in positions of power and status. But then Jesus says, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And so Peter takes Jesus aside and he says, Jesus, 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 I think you're mistaken. Rabbis rally the people, rally support, throw off the foreign oppressors, sit on thrones as king, and set up their friends with power and status. Messiah's aren't rejected. Messiahs don't suffer. Messiahs don't die. See, this story in the middle of the gospel is the turning point of the entire gospel. The first half, Mark is showing, proving that Jesus is the Messiah, right? We saw it. And in the second half of Mark, Mark is describing Jesus as the suffering servant, the one who will suffer and die for the people. And so most of the second half of Mark is actually the Passion Week during which Jesus suffers and dies. And so in Mark, Jesus is both Messiah and suffering servant. Peter sees the first. He sees that Jesus is the Messiah, but he thinks that by following the Messiah, that by following the kingdom bringer, that Peter will have his own goals, his own aspirations, and his own kingdoms brought. And in his confusion... Peter is like the blind man after the first touch. Just as the blind man encountered Jesus and began to see, so Jesus encounters, so Peter encounters Jesus and begins to see him for who he is. He is Messiah. 
But Peter does not yet see Jesus as suffering servant, which means that Peter doesn't see Jesus clearly, completely, fully. It means that Peter has a blurry portrait of Jesus, like a tree walking around. In order for Peter to see Jesus clearly, he needs a second touch. Because you don't see Jesus clearly if you only see him as Messiah, but not also as suffering servant. So do you see it? Why the story of the blind man who requires two touches? Because the blind man is an image, a parable, a metaphor for Peter and the disciples. They have been touched by Jesus, and they're beginning to see him, but not clearly, not fully. I think we in the church today also struggle with a blurry picture, a blurry understanding of Jesus. Like Peter, we want Jesus to be Messiah, but we don't really want him to be suffering servant. We want Jesus to be a conqueror. We want Jesus to be a kingdom bringer, because we think that when Jesus brings kingdoms, he sets us up with power and status, with comfort and stability. We want to follow Jesus in his kingdom bringing, but we don't really want to follow Jesus in the suffering. What we really want is for Jesus to endorse our kingdoms and then bring them. Do you ever do this? I know I do. I have goals and aspirations, and I find it really easy to imagine that Jesus endorses my goals and aspirations. For instance, I want to be good at my job. I want to be a good teacher. I want to be a good preacher. Wouldn't it be great if I was such a good teacher, such a good preacher, that people showered me with praise? Wouldn't it be great if when I submitted articles to a journal, they always accepted them because my research was so profound that they just had to accept it? Wouldn't it be great if publishers were lining up to publish my books? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if a little bit more money came along with that? I mean, Jesus can get behind all of that, right? He can endorse my kingdom, my kingdom come on earth so that my life can be heaven. There's a version of this that I hear from my students. They they report that manifesting or manifestation has has reemerged, thanks in large part to TikTok. How many of you have heard of manifesting before? couple of hands back there. 18-year-olds and younger who stopped paying attention five minutes ago. How many of you have heard of manifesting? (laughs) It's an old idea, actually, but it seems to reemerge every once in a while. It had a moment back in 2006 with the popular book The Secret by Rhonda Byrne, if you've heard of that. Um, And apparently now it's uh, all the rage with social media influencers and ubiquitous on the internet. So what is manifesting? It's this idea that if you think positive thoughts and put good vibes into the universe and believe, just but like believe that all of your dreams, all of your goals and aspirations can come true, then by the, the laws of attraction, you will manifest or make real in your life all of your dreams. You can have the life that you've always desired. 
And then what I see young people do is they'll take that and they'll kind of merge it with Christianity so that you get this, this idea that, that if you think positive thoughts and you believe in Jesus, like really believe, then he will give you everything you ever wanted. And while some of us might think that manifesting is a little silly, I think we all tend to slip into similar ways of thinking. We want Jesus to be a Messiah because we want him to bring our kingdoms. We want him to bring us children, a good marriage, a stable family situation, a good job, recognition for the work we do, stable finances, and the list goes on. And look, I'm not saying that any of those things are bad things to work for. I'm simply saying that all too often we want, we want Jesus to be Messiah and not suffering servant because we want Jesus to endorse our kingdoms and then bring them. But when we see Jesus only as Messiah, when we think that Jesus is in the business of endorsing our kingdoms, then we're like the blind man after the first touch. We don't see Jesus, not clearly, not completely. What we need is a second touch. So back to Mark 8. Now we pick up at verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Jesus is not only Messiah, but he is also suffering servant which means that if we want to follow Jesus, if we want to be a disciple, we have to follow him in this as well. We have to take up our cross and follow him. It means losing your own life, putting your own kingdom to death for the sake of Christ's kingdom. It means putting to death your own wills, desires, passions, preferences, predilections for the good of those around us. It means being last rather than first. It means being servant of all because Christ came to serve, not to be served. This teaching is so difficult. It's so hard. And sometimes it feels a little bit abstract. Like what would it look like to take up our cross and follow him? Let me give you a couple of examples of what it might look like in your life. It might look like inviting the new neighbor over for dinner, taking your kingdom, your family, your food, your resources, and your time, and sharing them with a family looking for connection and commitment. It might look like taking the time that you usually use to unwind and relax and using it to volunteer here at church. Netflix doesn't need you. Thursday night football doesn't need you. But there might be a young adult and a young adult ministry that does. It might look like reorienting your business and your business model to better serve your clients. It might look like extending an olive branch to someone who has wronged you, even though you have the right to be angry, the right to your vengeance, you put them first and you extend the offer of forgiveness. There are so many little choices we make every day where we could choose to spend our time, our money, our mental efforts, 
not on ourselves, but on those around us. And if we make one small choice and then another and another and another, our lives will be transformed. And I know that when I say that, I know that it gets a little bit scary because there's part of us that doesn't want transformation. We want safety, we want comfort, we don't want transformation. But here's the deep irony and the hidden truth of the gospel. In losing your life, you will find it. Jesus in Mark 8, 35 says, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. This is one of the most counterintuitive things in life. So young people, ask your parents and your grandparents about this because they've seen enough of life to know that it's true. If you seek happiness, you will not find it. It's true. What things make you happy? What do you enjoy? Food, movies, Netflix, alcohol, money, vacations, compliments from your boss, compliments from your spouse. If you try to, to find happiness by filling your life full of those things, seeking first what makes you happy, what ends up happening? Does the binge watching satisfy? Does the online shopping satisfy? Does that fleeting compliment sustain you? Do the vacations fill the void in your life? No. You wind up just as unhappy and unsatisfied and as empty as before. Jesus says, put to death your wills, your ambitions, your goals, your kingdoms, and follow me. Following Jesus means emptying yourself of all of those things, being willing to suffer, pouring yourself out and serving other people. And the deep and mysterious reality of the gospel is that if you do that, you will find life. You will find what is life-giving. When you stop seeking your own happiness and you start serving the people around you, that is when you find fulfillment, contentment, and joy. And when you stop seeking your own kingdom and start advancing Christ's kingdom, you might, you might, you might just find that you also get some of the things that you desired, like kids, a stable family, a good job. There's no promises of that. There's no promises of that. The only thing Jesus promises is that you will suffer. But through the suffering, you'll find life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I, I, I want to give you some modest homework for this week. Intentionally make small choices that put other people and their needs, wants, and desires before your own. It doesn't have to be a huge thing. Open a door for someone. Play the game your brother wants to play. Listen to your coworker talk about their day. Put yourself, your desires and needs to death to serve someone else, and then do it again. And then maybe a third time, a fourth, and a fifth, and see, see if those small things don't begin to transform your life. Because when you become a servant, when you put yourself to death for the sake of the people around you, it is then that you truly see Jesus. It is then that you truly follow Jesus. It is then 
that you will find life. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, show us the places in our lives where we have put our kingdoms above your own, and then lead us into putting first your kingdom and your righteousness. Continue to sanctify us, put to death our self-focused passions and desires, and bring to life in us hearts oriented towards you and towards others. And Lord, we ask that you bring life. Bring that which is life-giving into our lives, into our communities, into our neighborhoods, and into this church. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.